Welcome to the DMSG Healthcare Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Hadley, founder and CEO of the Denver Medical Study Group. Based in Colorado, we're going into our 15th year with over 1,350 members in 29 states. Our educational events include DMSG webinars, healthcare podcasts, and in-person events. I'm excited today to visit with Ron Holder, Chief Operating Officer of the Medical Group Management Association. Ron, would you tell our listeners a little about yourself and your uh, background? Sure. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, I started in healthcare uh, at the University of Kentucky back in 1995, where I was a master's of healthcare administration student and had progressive roles at the University of Kentucky Department of Surgery up to and including being interim administrator at a very young age, uh, which I feel like helped, you know, launch my career. I later went on to become then the anesthesiology administrator at the University of Louisville for five years, just down the road. And uh, I was recruited at that point to go join Scott and White at the time in Texas as a surgery administrator, about 70 surgeons there. Uh, of course, then the merger happened with Baylor, Scott and White somewhere along the way. And then I spent eight years as uh, an operations and a, a regional executive for medical specialties, which included Department of Medicine, Department of Radiation Oncology and Dermatology, but also had all of the hospital functions at that organization that would be aligned with the medical specialties, such as the catheterization labs, cancer centers. Uh, endoscopy, suites, dialysis, all those things were, were in uh, my uh, responsibilities. I had about 230 physicians and another 90 advanced practice professionals at that time. Uh, on committees, I wrote papers, books, those kind of things, book chapters. Uh, and I uh, eventually ended up on the MGMA board of directors and became the chair. Uh, and then I joined MGMA as the chief operating officer in 2019. We just had our best year ever in the 97-year history of MGMA. Uh, and uh, I've, I've been an adjunct faculty member. I'm also a board member of the uh, the CAMI board, which is the Commission on the Accreditation of Healthcare Management Education since 2019. And that, that is an organization that accredits graduate programs in healthcare administration. So uh, it's a very important thing and allows me to give back to education in a way that I really believe in. MGMA is fortunate to have you there, Ron. Most professionals are familiar with MGMA, but is there anything you'd like to share about your organization that our listeners may not be aware of? Sure. I know you have a, a very varied audience and it's it's yeah. It's interesting that MGMA is known by different people for lots of different things. Uh, traditional practice and medical practice administrators would know us for being a membership organization that dates back again 97 years and we offer all types of professional development thing from, you know, conferences to webinars, podcasts, online courses, things like that. And our certification products, we are a certified medical practice executive, as well as being, becoming a fellow of the American College of Medical Practice Executives. And, but hospital leaders may know us for our data products, such as our physician compensation and productivity surveys. Uh, physicians may may jokingly say, oh, you're the you're the people that uh, people say, use your information to tell me that I'm overpaid or something like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's, we also like to think hospitals have to have information to show that they're paying market appropriate rates for market value. We've got a government affairs office in Washington that's outstanding. We have uh, a great team of consultants um, and then, you know, the, the whole gamut of professional developments of uh, 
things that I mentioned previously for medical practice leaders, but also resources for practice leaders to use for with development of their staff, as well as physician leadership education. We also just launched a data discovery product, which is new that marries a practice's information with benchmarks and you can see, so practice leaders can see how they're performing to, to standards. So, you know, we've, we've got about 60,000 medical practice executives and leaders that are members, but we have relationships with uh, organizations of all shapes and sizes. Uh, a lot of people think we're small, but we've, we have a relationship with most of the large health systems and hospitals in the nation and uh, that deliver all, over half the care uh, in the United States. So. Very impressive. I thank you for sharing that. Recently, you shared that our nation is full of hospitals and health systems who lament the financial performance of their medical practices despite actively contributing to those financial struggles. You identified four significant ways this is happening. Would you share with our listeners what those four ways are and the impact they have on the hospital and health system owned medical practices? Sure. I'd be glad to, Chris. The, the first one is contracting. It's a pretty common practice for hospitals and health, health systems to accept a lower payment for one thing in exchange for a higher payment for another. Unfortunately, frequently, this is better hospital reimbursement by virtue of accepting lower payment for physician services. The argument is that that's bigger, better in the big picture. Okay, fine. But I, there, there's three potential issues with that. The first one is strategic. Um, if you think about Wayne Gretzky's quote as a framework, this is skating to where the puck is or maybe even was uh, instead of where the puck's going to be. Uh, most of the nation, you know, patients, uh, insurers, government, they, they, they want health care to be less expensive. It's a big problem in, in, in our country. And typically that means moving things that can be moved out of the hospital, out of the hospital until an, into an ambulatory environment. If healthcare is moving in that direction, why would you accept rates for services that don't cover your costs in those areas in exchange for what has been your cash cow in the past? That's one. Second, if your decision was to do this strategy for the bigger picture, how can you look at the medical group's finances and lament a lack of revenue based on that decision? It's like stepping back and seeing a satellite view of the earth and then and then, then you're looking at the financials of the medical group with a microscope and saying, wow, they're not making enough money in the medical group to cover the cost of the physician's salaries. Well, that was, part of that's contracting. You, you, we decided a big picture to do that. And then third, it can create an environment where the physicians feel or are told that they lose money or can't be profitable without a hospital subsidy. Like what would the finances in the medical group look like if the contracted rates for physician services were where they should be? Makes a lot of sense. The, the second one is uh, revenue cycle. And uh, it, it's possible for revenue cycles for hospital and physician services to be combined uh, and be effective for both parties. But that, the reality is that it's rare that that's the case. Uh, a big reason for that is, is how the effectiveness of revenue cycle operations is, is managed. One of the metrics that frequently used to measure the success of revenue cycle department of the revenue cycle leaders is the cost to collect. And that means what percentage of your collections have to go towards paying to get said collections in the door. So if an average hospital bills in the $20,000 range, and the average physician bill is closer to $200. Do you think that a revenue cycle employee spends 100 times as much time and effort to get the hospital <laughs> bill in the door? 
No, no, they don't. Of course not. Um, if it takes $20 of staff time to collect on a bill, that's 10% of the physician bill and a tenth of a percent of the hospital. So you can't necessarily look at those and combine them in a way and, and have maybe the one benchmark of what that number should be. You know, so even if you have separate revenue cycle operations, that in those situations, the incentive will be to pull staff from your physician billing services to try and get the larger hospital bills collected on a regular basis, right? And both of the, those things uh, uh, can contribute to another way that revenue cycle operations is measured. And that is uh, by days and accounts receivable or sometimes referred to as AR. The dirty little secret about how to hit an AR benchmark is to write off all of your uncollected bills. <laughs> you know, and, and that is not good for the organization. But um, when it costs a higher percentage of revenue to collect a physician bill, or you're pulling staff from physician billing to chase the bigger hospital ones, it's a regular practice to write off massive amounts of the smaller physician bills so you can hit these metrics for your revenue cycle, right? But the question I have is, isn't it better to get 90% of $200 than to get 98% of nothing. You know, in regard to that, uh, Ron, uh, these are the issues that you're describing are actually in place in these health systems and hospitals with their medical practices. Are they changing their attitude toward the revenue picture, or is that a slow process? Um, it is a slow process. I mean, they're very, you know, the Titan turning the Titanic, right? But... Um, you, you you have health system hospitals, large clinics, even uh, some of the stuff I'm talking about would also apply to large clinics as opposed to hospitals and health systems that that are so fearful or so concerned about losing what was. It's it's the same argument about value based care, right? Of moving from vol from volume to value. Um, you know, can't be half pregnant. Those kind of things. So um, you either you got to go that direction, but if you're not going to go that direction if you're concerned about losing what you had. Sure. So uh, it, it's tough. And, and that's one of the reasons th those two metrics that I talked about, the cost to collect in days and they are is, and regardless of whether you're a small practice, maybe you even outsource this stuff. These are things that you should be concerned about with regards to managing your relationship with your external billing company, but also revenue cycle uh, internally is, is you have to have a balanced scorecard approach. You have to look at it in terms of like, how much of what was possible to be collected did they actually get in the door as another metric as opposed to just cost to collect or days and accounts receivable? Because both of those things, I don't want to say that people are being purposely deceptive and manipulating those, but they are open. They're if that, Those are the only things you look at. They're open to manipulation. The third item uh, is, is overhead and overhead allocation. So hospitals have much larger infrastructures and medical practices. Uh, there are departments and functions that practices just, they're just not going to have, such as trauma and emergency related services, as like ambulances and helicopters, 24 hour standby services, food services, joint commission and regulatory staff. Um, and, and then there are services that are significantly larger than any medical practice would, would have a need for. And some of them, because they are also supporting those departments I just mentioned, uh, such as HR, marketing, custodial services, physical plant, building services, and IT. The problem isn't that medical the medical practices in an organization where those functions exist. 
it, it's how the expense of those services are allocated to the units. So organizations will tend to allocate overhead to the units where revenue is created. So most organizations are so complex that it's a hard case to make to allocate overhead based on usage. What ends up happening is overhead gets allocated on a percentage of revenue generated or percent of co total cost, or in some smaller cases, even the ability to bear. Uh, the first two types of those allocations usually result in practices receiving a higher percentage of overhead than they actually use or benefit from. And of course, that can tank the, the financial picture for the medical practice. Hospitals love to manage based on staffing ratios. That's great. It works for them. Um, but in practices, cost to productivity, cost to productivity is more important than employees to productivity. As an example, many practices perform better financially. They get better patient satisfaction scores. They're able to respond to patients faster. And both providers and staff alike tend to have less burnout and are happier in their jobs when the practice has two medical assistants instead of one registered nurse. The cost is about the same. But if you're being told to do the work with fewer employees, you end up getting the more expensive one, such as a registered nurse, who can do more things, but that employee ends up spending a lot of their time working below their licensure, which is not good for the employee or for the practice, right? That's just one example. Hospitals will typically also want to use the tech or informatic solutions that they use for the hospital, and they'll try and, you know, smash the square peg into the round hole to get it to work for the practices uh, they employ as well, even though they weren't designed for it. Uh, and then... Hospitals will sometimes um, assume practice management is less complex than hospital management or leadership. And that leads to diminishing the roles and the belief that literally anyone can do the job. Uh, the reality is that in medical practices, leaders have to use influence more often than authority to get things done, which is a more refined skill set. Yeah. Recently, I had uh, a comment made to me about uh, medical practices that uh, the, what is the relationship that they have with hospitals? Are they uh, actually, do they work for the hospital or is there an employment uh, contract with the hospital for the group? What impact does the difference between those two have on the medical practice? So if you've seen one relationship, you've seen exactly <laughs> one relationship. It, it's, it's, it's all over the map. You can you, you can you can put things in buckets, but sometimes even within a within the organization, it varies with regards to how they view the relationship, right? So, you, if, depending on the size and the organization and the structure, you even you may even be in a situation where the physicians themselves don't even identify with the organization that employs them at the highest level, and that's particularly true in like independent practice associations that are then get employed or have a relationship with a hospital or health system and. And they, they may see themselves as the, you know, the the cardiovascular associates of blank, even though they're they're part of a, a you know a big system, um, and their identity is the cardiovascular. So they're maintaining that brand. Uh, so it, it it's all over the place. Uh, there's there's not a lot of physicians who who want to think about the fact that, you know, their job or their or their their role other than making people healthier is to make sure there's patients in the hospital. That's, that's, that's bad. Um, but um, there, there might be some of you that way. You know, are there other challenges that hospitals and health systems create for their medical practices, either financially or otherwise? 
Yeah, uh, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, Chris, in that some of the things that I'm talking about may also be true for, you know, large large practices, or maybe it's a, instead of a hospital or health system, it's a, you know equity owned or, uh, practice or things like that. So I'm I'm going to broaden it a little bit to talk about some of the challenges that can be for practices that include hospitals and health systems, but can also be other forms uh, of organizations. So um, one of the ones is, is lack of transparency. Do the docs in the organization know that there are struggles at all? Do they know why there's struggles? Do they know about the contracts, the budget, or or how to like how to manage or 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 what the costs are of things that they can actually control? Or or is this or is this like, hey, doc, do more and spend less? Physicians are are brilliant people that if you bring them into it, into the process. They will be willing participants. They want to. They want to do things. They know healthcare is expensive. They want to help drive out waste and things like that. But they can't if you don't tell them. Expectations of capitalistic behavior <laughs> with socialist yeah. reward systems. The, like, does the physician who manages their practice like a business, which is what everyone wants? He's like, I, I want the unicorn doctor. I want the doctor that has great outcomes and has great patient satisfaction scores and and takes an interest and manages their practice like a business and and all these these wonderful things and has great relationships with referring physicians and their employees are super engaged. And, you know, sometimes it's like, well, why would that employee why would that physician want to work for a system? If they have all those things, wouldn't they, wouldn't they be successful out on their own or running their own practice? Is the value of their work that they've done lost by spreading you know, allowance rates for collections across everyone or, or spread, spreading costs across everyone? So how does that person that did all those things you want them to do see it? One of the things that uh, came up recently was... Uh for me as a patient was I got an email from the health system uh, about doing a patient survey of my appointment with my doctor. And as a consumer, I'm going, why should I fill this out? Who cares? And I got thinking about that. How important does a health system rely on patient survey results? You're reading my mind, Chris, because that's <laughs> one of the other things I was going to mention. So you know, not understanding the metrics or and or being unreasonable about them, unreasonable about them is is something that frustrates the heck out of physicians. And one of the, those is patient satisfaction. It's my favorite to talk about in this regard. So typically, leaders will measure that based on percentile rank in the database. You know, hey, congratulations, Doctor Hadley, you're at the 95th percentile. That kind of thing. So <clears throat> the problem with this type of mentality is that the rating spectrum that they use to determine percentile rank is, rank is so ridiculously top heavy that measuring percentile rank is a joke. You know, doctors who get only 30% of the responses to be in the top boxes, um, that they, they're not in business. <laughs> so I mean, they, like everything is, is top heavy. In order to get the percentile, rank, you'd look at percents of survey respondents that are in the top boxes. So on a five point scale, the number of responses that were a five, on a 10 point scale, the number of responses that are maybe nine and 10. In a survey, it'd be common to see a physician go from 92.1% of top, top box to 92.2% top box and move up five to 10 whole percentage points. That's how top heavy the, the, these survey things are. So 
you know, that's one patient out of a thousand difference <laughs> moving up to a top box. Right. Yeah. So it, it's true. It, improve higher in the range, improving response rates might not move you at all on a percentile basis. And, and likewise, it's frustrating over time uh, when you're measuring percentile rank, your top box could improve and your percentile rank could actually go down because the database is made up of basically the people that are working on this stuff who are actively interested in improving it. So, so the actual whole body it, over time has been moving uh, and you, you could uh, a top box score that would equate to 50th percentile. It changes from period to period. The over there's an overwhelming majority of physicians that score well above 90 in the top box in a tiny amount score less than 70. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. something. Um, yeah. It is. It, it is something that frustrates the heck uh, out, out of physicians who, generally speaking, get over 90% of their people will say top boxes. Yeah. Well, you know, Ron, we're, we're running out of time here, but can you share some of the positives that integrated health systems bring to the table for physicians? Absolutely. And, and there are some, otherwise it wouldn't exist. Uh, security is a big one. Uh, typically, it's financially safer to be an employee than an owner of a small business. The upside may not be as big, um, but your paycheck may not vary a lot from month to month, like in a smaller business. Renting versus buying a house. If something breaks or isn't working, it's not necessarily your problem to get it fixed. Uh, someone will show up from the ether <laughs> to, to, fix, to fix whatever's going on. Uh, economy of scale to have some infrastructure resources that maybe you would need to contract out or, or, or you can't afford to have a specialist for in a small independent practice. And this could be things like, you know, in, in a small practice, the administrator is the IT director, the HR director, the legal and risk management department, they're contracting all those things. Uh, so you, you get the, through economy of scale to have fractions of, of specialists. And then it's 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 nice as a you know physician to to go into a situation where you have a ready-made network of referring providers and specialists who are all sharing common records such as an electronic medical record and, and other communication vehicles. So those are just some of the ones that are absolutely of generally benefit. You know, is uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share? Sure. Um, our system's broken. We need to do better. We got to focus on the right things to improve the health of our nation individually and collectively. Value is and has been a big buzzword lately in healthcare, but value-based care shouldn't just be HMOs from the '90s, but with better marketing. So, and and just pushing risk to other people. It, it needs to focus on quality costs. And lastly, I'd like to to advocate for joining and becoming involved with your professional associations. If you're a medical practice leader, MGMA would love to have you. But if it's something else, find your tribe. Have a network of professionals to bounce ideas off of. But volunteering uh, to with your association or your organization to advance your profession and contribute to the knowledge base of your profession will help you become a better leader. Well, Ron, we thank you for your time today. MGMA is a platinum sponsor of the Denver Medical Study Group, and I look forward to having y'all continue to do that. Thank you so much for your time and the information. I'm, I'm sure our listeners will gain a lot of knowledge from the discussion. Yeah, thank you, Chris. It's my pleasure. You bet.